0: Turn in your Bibles with me now to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. We are dealing with the ancient landmarks that are set by the Bible that we want to follow, that we want our children to follow, and their children if the Lord tarries. I hope He doesn't. I, I, would, I would love to find out that this series of messages was unnecessary because at its conclusion, the Lord came for all of us. That would bless, it would bless your heart too, wouldn't it, Mother? She wants me to pray, and she prays herself, that the Lord will come for her before she goes to Him. And I understand that, and I think as we all get older, we'll all understand that better. But we trust a wise and merciful Creator, who in His loving providence will take us out gently if we have put our trust in Him. Another landmark that is being assaulted in our day and time and that we want to stand against is the fact that women are to be silent in assemblies. It is a shame that even among the Southern Baptists, they are ordaining women. It is a shame that in our city, the largest and fastest growing church has an apostle and an S. Ron Carpenter and his wife. It is a shame to read about ordinations of couples. He and she ministries. Maybe she-male ministries. I don't know, but he and she ministries. And the Lord wants us to stand against them. The Bible's plain enough on this subject throughout, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to read to you verses 34 and 35. The context has been speaking in tongues that if it's to be done, it was to be done in a very orderly way following Paul's rules, lest it be disruptive and appear to be a group of barbarians together babbling in foreign languages. However, as Paul is dealing with the subject of all things being done decently and in order, he brings in the women and he's not dealing just with them speaking in tongues, but all their conversation right down to question asking, which can be very disruptive when women start to ask questions in an assembly of men. Here's the two verses. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. We're going to come to another passage in a moment that will tell us a little bit more why God made that ruling. But at this moment, let's just look at exactly what it says. Women are to keep silence in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. They are commanded to be under obedience. And part of that is not answering again, not questioning, not resisting the authority of men in their lives or the authority in the church. And this is for all churches, as it says in verse 34. Even if they have questions, there was not to be a Q&A session that would include the women. They were to go home and ask their husbands if they had questions, because it's a shame. Women are to conduct themselves in a shame-faced, humble, modest, meek, and quiet way, and it's a shame when any congregation lets them speak in an assembly that is mixed of men and women. And we live in a time where it's just commonplace now. It is just flat out common. And it's a shame. And it's not permitted. And it's against the law. And it's contrary to Paul. And we're going to hold to that landmark. There's no girl or woman in this church that's honest and sincere that knows we don't love them all. The greatest gift short of eternal life and the gift of Jesus Christ in this world was women. If a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. We're not against our women. We want to protect our women, pamper our women, love our women, take care of our women according to the Bible's instructions. But when we come into this place, into this house, into an assembly, even if we were in a field or we were meeting in a cave or we were in the catacombs under the city of Rome, women are to be silent. Now remember... I cannot deal with all the aspects of this subject, and I said I would not, because they've been dealt with before. It's just to remind us of the landmark. Women, you are allowed to sing. And when you sing, you are speaking, teaching, and admonishing one another while you're singing. But you are doing it as part of the congregation so there is no usurpation of authority, nor are you singling yourself out, nor are you being disruptive. You should sing as loud as you can. I enjoy hearing your voice. I miss Sarah today. (laughs) Because I can hear her voice when she's here. I can also hear her husband's, and I miss his as well. You are allowed to sing. And when you sing, you are truly teaching and admonishing us in the Lord because you're joining in to holy words that are describing our position in Christ. You are allowed to have assemblies of the women, or get with a few women, or get with one woman. And if you're older and aged, as the Bible describes in Titus chapter 2, you are allowed and encouraged to teach them things pertaining to godliness for women, and they're described in Titus 2, 3 through 5. You are also allowed to say amen in a public assembly. Amen is verbal agreement. There's no usurpation of authority with you saying, I agree, I agree all the time. In fact, it's quite charming and it's quite warming. You know, if you tried it at home, you might find that it enhances your marriage to say amen every time your husband says something. Now, how do I prove (laughs) we're all married and as the heart of, as face answereth the face in water, so the heart of man to man, I would love an amen from time to time how do we prove that a woman can say amen from a Bible, from this passage? And this is why we want to use our Bibles very carefully. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Hmm. Paul's position on women being silent in the church is the same as the position on women being silent under the law. If we go back and look under the law in the Old Testament, did women say, Amen? Oh, yes, they did. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Men and women included, and it should be obvious to you that it's very much like singing. You're not objecting. You're not questioning. You're not disrupting. You're saying you're in agreement with what's being done. That's enough from this passage, because I have a bigger problem then are women saying amen? The big problem I have is that the men don't say amen. amen. Right. Thank you, brother. Now, I don't need amens. Have you ever heard me say one sentence in the 22 years that you've known me and finish that sentence and say amen? Expect. Have you ever, even one time, you've never heard me do that, I don't think? Because I don't need the amens. Do you know who I want the amens for? The God of heaven and everyone that's sitting in here because it's contagious. Amen. Too many of you have Presbyterian backgrounds, whether you ever went to one of their churches or not. You know, they're too formal. The, the worship of God. Well, let's just go by the new test. Are we here in First Corinthians 14? Are we really in chapter 14 where we're told how to do things decently and in order? Look at verse 16. 1 Corinthians 14:16. I don't want it for me. I want it for the Lord, and I want it for others that come in here. You know, if there were 50 of us saying amen instead of five, it'd be contagious. Amen. And it would give glory to God. I don't know what you're afraid of. I know the first few times it's a little uncomfortable, but just get it out there. It's for the Lord. If you agree with something, say amen. amen. I could get spoiled though. I hope not. 1 Corinthians fourteen sixteen, Paul's dealing with tongues, and look what he says. If you're speaking in tongues, no one can understand you. So he says in verse 16, else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? That's from verse 15 where it says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. That means in a language that is known by me and you. And I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing in a language that is known by me and by you. And then verse 16 comes along and says, if you're not speaking in an understanding way, but you're speaking in foreign languages, how will the unlearned, those that don't know that language, how will they be able to say amen at thy giving of thanks because they won't know when you finish or what you've said or that you said anything worth saying amen to? Right. Do you know what this verse implies to us? What we can assume from it? Amens were common in a New Testament church where Paul was the pastor. Amen. And women are allowed to say it. You Listen, we're not going to think that you're insubordinate and an odious woman and a Jezebel sitting among us if you're constantly reminding us that you're in agreement with what's being taught here. Amen. <laughs> right, right. I don't need the amens. I'm going to preach the best of my ability for the glory of God, and according to the Bible, whether you say amen or not. However, I want it for God's sake, and when I see it in the Bible, as small as that little verse is, and as obscure as it may be to most people, Paul said, here's another reason why I don't want you speaking in tongues. I want you speaking in a language that's understandable, so that those that don't know that language, the, the language of tongues, they can hear you, they can understand you, and they can throw their amen in when you bless the Most High. If we go to Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra crawled up on that pulpit and opened the book in front of all the people, they all bowed down and ate, they were saying amen, and that was one fantastic service. God had a service in the, under the Old Testament where the priest would holler out from one mountainside and the people of Israel were on the, on the other side of the valley and they would issue a curse and all the people would say, Amen. Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people would say, Amen. Because they were agreeing that it was fair and that it was right for God to severely judge children that set light by their mother or father. I, just want, I know, I, I just chased a rabbit for five minutes Men, lead your women. Do you know, there will be some shame in this church if your woman has to start the amening before you do in, in your marriage. And listen, I'll preach on verse 40. I'll preach on verse 40 in First Corinthians 14. Let all things be done decently and in order as soon as there's too many amens. I promise. As soon as there's too many amens and it gets disruptive, I'll preach on verse 40. I don't think I'll have to worry about it. Nope. But I would like to encourage you, and it's, it's not for me. I want to follow every sentence of the New Testament. Amen. And if the whole church were in agreement, it would be contagious. That's right. And it would be glorifying to God that we were all together and that we agree on what the Bible says and that we voice that agreement. Because under the law, He required that agreement. You had to say amen. Amen. Let me tell you something. Read the Old Testament. Read about the test of jealousy. If a husband went away on a business trip and came home and took a look at his wife and said she is one good-looking woman, he did not have to have any grounds. This is how much God looks out for husbands. He did not have to have any grounds. The Bible specifically says that there is no reason except pure jealousy in his heart. That he was out of town for a couple of weeks and he comes home. He's got a beautiful wife. He takes her down to the priest. He takes her down to the priest. The priest makes up a little drink for her. And the priest says, you're going to drink this. And if you've gone apart from your husband while he was gone, your thigh, and that is a euphemism for another part that's connected to the thigh, your thigh is going to rot right here on the spot. And if you've been virtuous while he's been gone, you're going to go home and conceive seed. Do you know what she had to do? Amen. Amen. I don't know why you can't say amen to the preaching of the New Testament. If you'd like the old better, then go back and try it somewhere. We're not going to do that here. But if you'll think about A woman saying amen under those conditions. Surely you can say it when you know that Jesus Christ came and redeemed you from the fall that you got us involved in by listening to the devil. For the man was not deceived, but the woman was being deceived. And that means we need to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, we are going up. Right now I'm sounding like a Neanderthal man. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of modern religion, I'm looking like we're prehistoric. And if you say amen, you're looking prehistoric. Because the whole world is moving away from this and they're giving women more and more of a place. Didn't the perilous times warn us of that? They would creep into houses and lead captive, silly women. If you watch the camera as it pans a Benny Benny Hinn crusade, you will see the proportions in that audience that would listen to such a fairy little man get up and tell a fairy little gospel that talks about a fairy little Jesus that has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. I'm not being nasty. This is nothing compared to what Jesus Christ is going to say about His religion. Amen. That All that idiotic maneuvering that He does, and the slaying in the Spirit when He knocks the whole choir down by breathing on them, I only know of one being that ever breathed out and the Holy Spirit was received by men. And that was my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I will defend Him that He has no competitors. He has no peers. He has no classmates. And Benny Hinn would be the last one in that class. 1 right. Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. This is Paul writing to Timothy, laying out rules for the orderly care of the churches. And here are the reasons for this order. And I'm thankful for the Word of God when, when the Lord tells us why. Amen. Verse 13, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. In a society, the men are more important than the women. I'm sorry if you don't like that. I pray that you will like it. Because in submitting to this, you will find your greatest happiness right. as a woman. Let the man bear the burden of the greater privilege. That means he's got the greater responsibility to lead the marriage and lead the family and lead the church and lead the nation and lead the workplace and lead everything else. It's a burden. Adam was made first. The woman was made to be his helper. It was a man's world in the beginning, and it's a man's world today if we submit to the Bible. However, it would be one lonely, terrible, miserable world if it was a man's world and there wasn't a woman to walk along and hold my hand or come up behind me when I'm at my computer and play with my hair. Listen, it'd be a terrible world if I didn't have that. It'd be a terrible world if I had to feel those sheets on my body all by myself at night. I am not putting down women. I'm putting them up because I'm putting them where God designed them to be. And I resent those that would say I'm a woman hater, and I've been called that before for just preaching the Bible. Do you know what I've read many times in my life? That Paul was a woman hater. That Paul, because he wrote 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, and he wasn't married, must have been a woman hater. He wasn't a woman hater. He was the most faithful apostle Jesus Christ had. And this is the truth. In our church, we emphasize the men, and we love the women. And we want you women to fear God. We can read our Bibles. We know there were great women. There was an Anna in Luke chapter 2 that we love dearly. She was in the house, she was in the temple of God praying always. We see Mary Magdalene. We know that our Lord appeared first to Mary Magdalene and not to Peter. We believe all that. We find the upper room in Acts chapter 1 and we find a whole lot of women there. We know that Jesus was supported by women during his ministry because they ministered to him out of their substance. We see, we see Priscilla working right alongside Aquila in converting Apollos. Amen. We see Eunice and Lois raising up a Timothy that was Paul's favorite minister in the New Testament. Right. Women, I'm not putting you down, I'm putting you where the Lord wants you, and you can be great. Amen. What woman hasn't ever read 2 Timothy chapter 1 and wanted to be, have that kind of an effect on a, a third generation away from her, I mean second generation away from her to be a preacher? A great preacher. Okay, enough defensiveness. I know, I look weak. But I just want all you women to understand that there's a balance in the New Testament and I will preach the whole balance. But it's telling us why. Verse 13, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And the, the, the being, the person, the, the woman that was formed second to be his helper is not to usurp her position by becoming more important by talking and trying to tell him the way it should be. Because he's to tell her the way it should be. Because he was made to rule over her, Genesis 3.16. She was made for him, he was not made for her. First 1 Corinthians 11.9. This is just the Bible order. And listen, when you find a great man that fears God and that loves you, you can get behind him, grab a hold of his coattails, and he's going to take you to glory. He's going to take you to glory in this world and in the next world. If you'll follow him. No, he's not going to be your savior. You know I didn't mean that. But, I mean, you can follow Him all the way to death. Men, do you know how sober what I just said was? A woman changing her name and saying, I do, and agreeing to be your wife and follow you? Then you better be one noble, great man in this world. You better love the things of heaven. You better fear God. And you better be worth having a woman follow you wherever you lead her. The reasons for the woman being silent in church and under subjection and not usurping authority and not being a teacher. in Verses 11 and 12 are explained in verse 13 that it's a man's world that Adam was first formed and for Eve to step out of line and tell him what to do or to cause any disruption in a meeting where men are is wrong. And the second reason is in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The second reason is women are more emotionally deceived and subject to false teachers than are men. Men are more critical and suspect of men, teachers, than a woman is. Just look at some of the presidents we've elected in the last 20 years. The only way they got elected is because we allow women to vote. Everything would change drastically if women weren't allowed to vote. And if you think that I'm, I'm really Neanderthal for saying that, I want you to know that it wasn't until 1913 that it was done. That's right. For the majority of the history of our nation, women didn't vote. They vote too emotionally. Mm-hmm. All you got to show is some little kindergartner being handed a piece of candy by a president, and a woman will vote for that man. When the man who goes out to work every day and pays taxes and fears war... When he hears a man, he wants to hear some pretty sober evidence that his nation, his property, his life, his family is going to be protected. He doesn't really care about a president visiting a kindergartner, a kindergarten and holding little children in his lap. He knows that that is entirely show. Oh, I didn't mean to get off on that. Do I ever talk? Forgive me. Forgive me, but all I was trying to do was explain verse 14, that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam made a choice. Eve did not make a choice. She engaged in a conversation with the devil and she actually believed him. You know, that tree, I think you're right. If I eat that tree, we'll be like God. Adam, he made a choice. He thought about God and he looked at Eve's navel. And he liked what he saw. Right. And he chose the woman over God. Yeah. You say, wow, well, who's worse? The man's worse. Mm-hmm. And it was by man that sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Amen. Because Adam made a terrible choice and the covenant was primarily with him. Right. Adam's sin was worse. But when it comes to the matter of which sex is more easily deceived, which is the, the subject right here, the woman was, right. was the one that was deceived, not the man. She was in the transgression in the form of deception, and so for that reason, she's to be quiet in assemblies because they are not going to teach us very much, other than on an exceptional basis. They should listen and follow rather than try to lead. You know, if we come down to chapter three of First Timothy, chapter uh, First Timothy, we come to the third chapter. If we just keep reading, and we drop down to verse one, it says, "This is a true saying: If a man desire the office of a bishop," He desireth a good work. It doesn't say anything about a woman desiring the office of a bishop or a bishop press. If a man desires, and then it says in verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. As soon as a woman can be a man and be the husband of one wife, we'll consider First Timothy 3, 1 through 7 applying to her. Until then, she doesn't have any right in First Timothy chapter 3, either the first seven verses or the verses about a deacon. We don't have deaconesses. A deacon is a position of authority. They rule. They supervise. The, the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, put, put, your, put out seven men that are of honest report that we may appoint over this business. What business? The financial affairs of the early church and making sure all the widows were taken care of properly. It's a ruling position. It has authority. It has responsibility. It has decision-making. They will be held accountable for how they handle the church's finances. It is not for women. It's for men. There are no deaconesses in the New Testament church. There are deacons, and they are men, and they're the husbands of one wife. Can women, be, can women serve the church? Absolutely. You want to read about Phoebe in Romans chapter 16? Phoebe must have had a little bit of this because she was traveling through the, among the churches, and Paul said, when Phoebe gets there to Rome, I want you to do anything that she asks of you. She has been a succorer of very many. What does succorer mean? She's helped very many, including me. You help her out. If she needs another ten grand for whatever projects she's working on right now among the churches, you help her. Right. But she was operating under the authority of the apostles and pastors and deacons, and then we have Phoebe. Oh, all I want to do is touch the high points. Women are to be silent. But you can say amen. You can teach other women. You can sing at the top of your lungs. The louder the better. You can love your man. You can support your man. You can say amen to your man. You can help him get in the Word of God. You can beg him. Will you read the Bible to me tonight? Grow three inches. We haven't even got to the couple's retreat yet. It's appalling, though, to see how many churches now have women in the ministry. The Bible's against it. Children, Kevin, young man, do not let this landmark be lost from this church. It'll happen in very subtle ways. They'll want a little bit more freedom. Can we get up and give thanksgivings? Oh, that's do you know how much I want to give women the opportunity to say thanksgiving in church? That's my flesh, because I always want to be as cooperative and as kind and as giving and as flexible as possible. But when it's not when I don't see it in the Bible, no way. If I were to open up the pulpit for a woman to get up here and give thanksgiving, what else is she going to add to that that would be disruptive to the church? Paul said, keep them silent. Let them sing. Let them say amen. Let them teach the women. So that's where we stick. Okay? And teach your, and teach your children that. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. When I turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, I would hope that some of you know or, or at least suspect where I'm going. Let me quickly say this. We've been over this so many times it doesn't need to be repeated. Except for two, two or three minutes. We reject the holy days of Rome. Amen. Amen. We reject the holy days of any paganism. We will celebrate Thanksgiving. We will give thanks to God because we had fathers in our nation that established a national tradition that wasn't grounded in paganism or papalism at all. So we'll do Thanksgiving. We'll do the 4th of July. We're thankful for our nation. We'll do Memorial Day. We're thankful for the men that laid down their lives. You know, we'll celebrate it. You can go to a parade. You can, you can march in the parade. You can play a trumpet in the parade. You can build a float for, for, for vets to stand on. I mean, up north, Memorial Day is a huge event. Down here, it doesn't happen. But up, up north, every single village, town, hamlet has a huge parade and everybody comes out and lines Main Street and there's 21 gun salutes and there's a prayer in the cemetery and it's enormous. I don't understand what's happened down here and I'm not going to worry about it, but there's nothing wrong with that. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm going over those things is there are holidays that we can celebrate. But those holidays that are connected to false religion, Christmas, Halloween, Easter, Valentine's, Pagan religion, right. pagan worship, we reject. And we have nothing to do with them. And we make it a rule of fellowship in our church. If you want to practice those Roman holidays, you are not in communion with us. Right. And we exclude over it. We don't just preach about it. We take a stand on it. Right. It is violating Second Corinthians chapter 6 that we had read twice this morning where it says there can be no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, Jesus Christ and Belial... None. Right. Roman, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's remind ourselves of the first place you should go when talking to someone about Christmas, which is only a, a month away, to the world. Remember, on our website is a little document with a couple reasons why we don't celebrate Christmas. I think it's about 120 of them. And here's the first one. And... Look at verse 29, "...when the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. After that they be destroyed from before thee. And that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise." Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. He did not tell us to celebrate his birth. He was once in a manger. We remember Him being in a manger from the Gospel accounts of Him being in a manger, but He doesn't want us celebrating Him being in a manger. He wants us celebrating Him being on the cross, the Lord's Supper. He told us how to do it. He wants us to celebrate His resurrection from the dead. Oh, how do we do that? Baptism, because we're Baptists. We celebrate His resurrection the Bible way. We don't need Easter Sunday. A sunrise service doesn't celebrate His resurrection. He didn't rise with the sun. While it was still dark and the women went to the tomb, He was already gone. He rose at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. 72 hours, three days and three nights after He was buried on Wednesday evening. That is the proof that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He said, bury me and I'll be in the ground three days and three nights and I'll come out. And we celebrate that with baptism and the preaching of the Gospel. You know, many will say, I'm not doing it to those gods. I'm doing it to Jesus. Look at verse 31. Please, please, everyone, look at the first clause of verse 31. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. Moses admitted that these people would do it unto the Lord. And people that celebrate Christmas and Easter say they're doing it to the Lord. That doesn't cover it. That doesn't justify it. Because if it's the wrong way of worship, he doesn't want it being done to him. You know, I could go off into a a short sermonette right now about what spiritual adultery is. It's on our website. Spiritual adultery is when you... oh, I know I can tell a men's group. Spiritual adultery is when a woman comes home and crawls into bed with her husband and says, I'd rather have you do it the way that so-and-so did it to me. Half the Old Testament is based on that premise. Go read the book of Ezekiel. God considered those Israelites worshiping another God to be vile adultery against Him. Over. And He describes it in far more graphic terms than I just used. Far more. Go try Ezekiel 23 on for size. Try Ezekiel 16. They're very graphic passages because that's how God looks at someone celebrating Christmas. You are bringing the traditions and the customs of Baal and other false gods and offering them to me. I am offended. I want to be worshipped the way I told you. I want to make love the way I told you I want to make love. Whatsoever I have commanded you, observe to do it. Don't turn to the left hand the right hand. Don't add to or take away. It's spiritual adultery to mix Jesus Christ with the religions of the world and their tree worship and all the other things they do. Why do you think it's called Christ Mass? Where do you think it came from? Some Baptist church? Walmart? To sell more toys? Christ Mass. Doesn't that tell you where it came from? There's 120 reasons we don't celebrate it. And we don't tolerate it. It's not a matter of liberty. It's not a matter of liberty to go mix yourself with idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's not a liberty. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. We don't touch it. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, let's look at another one. Another, another ancient landmark that we cannot let slip away. Children, do rabbits lay eggs? When the world celebrates Easter, do they show rabbits carrying little baskets of eggs? Do rabbits lay eggs? No. When you get older, I'll explain to you what they mean by the rabbit and what they mean by the egg. And it doesn't have a thing to do with Jesus Christ. And when they're out there standing facing the east on a Sunday morning at 6 o'clock, I don't care if they're singing hymns, thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. I don't care that they're singing hymns. I don't care that they're singing the best hymns. They're facing the wrong direction. They're doing the wrong thing. They're mixing sun worship with the worship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't rise at that time. That is a pagan practice that existed in Ezekiel chapter 8 when Ezekiel was shown 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord because to worship God you had to face west. To worship God you had to face west. These men had their backs to the temple of the Lord and were facing the east and worshipped the sun in the east. And he called it a great abomination. How in the world can we take an abomination, mix it with the name of Christ, jam it together, have a good Friday and an Easter Sunday morning which only has 36 hours instead of three days and three nights. There's only one day and two nights in between those two periods of time. They're wrong. We are a little tiny remnant left in the earth to fight for truth. Men have turned away their ears from sound doctrine. 200 years ago it was illegal to celebrate Christmas in this country. We haven't changed. They've changed. We are holding to what this country was founded on and what Baptist churches observed just 200 years ago. No state in this country had Christmas as a state holiday until Alabama in 1836. No state. They all understood. It was a papal pagan holiday and they wouldn't touch it. You'd be fined if you didn't show up for work because they knew what you were doing at home. That that was a landmark. And it's fallen by the wayside. And we're going to hold to it. We are not going to go down. Don't you read the Old Testament and see all the trouble they had with idolatry? They went down to idols over and over and over again. We're not going down to those idols. We're not going to put that green tree up in the corner of our house. You know, we've already left Deuteronomy chapter 12, but if we'd have read the whole chapter, it actually and specifically mentions the green tree as one of the things they do to their gods that we are not to do unto the Lord our God. They used to preach against it. Now everybody celebrates it. I hate it. I hope you hate it. It's paganism mixed with Christ by the great mixer himself, whitewashing everything. Halloween, what's hallowed about the druid last night of the year? Hallowed, I understand that word to mean holy. Right. Holy evening, devil worship. No way. What kind of twisted mind came up with that? Twisted by the devil himself. I've been in haunted houses. I've been in haunted churches on October 31st. I've been at youth rallies with hundreds, maybe more, young people crawling through haunted houses on October 31st. What in the world is a child of God doing in a place like that? Why is it being taught and allowed? Why is it being promoted? Do you know what kind of young people you get from activities like that? The unregenerate Probably, and at best, very carnal Christians. Matthew 25. Jesus, our Lord, has the sheep on His right hand, the goats on His left. And this is what He has to say to those on His left hand. Verse 41. Then shall He say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 is one verse of a number that teach us there is a burning hell. There is a lake of fire. We will not let go of that landmark. They can make fun all they want of hell, fire, and brimstone preachers. You know, they make fun of that. It's a little phrase they use to describe some old-fashioned preacher. He preaches hell, fire, and brimstone because they've given up on hell. They've got rid of hell. And listen, if I could get rid of hell, I'd get rid of it too. Wouldn't you? But I'm not going to get rid of it because it's in the Bible. And we're going to keep this as a landmark. Billy Graham can say there is no such thing as a burning hell. Robert Shuler can say hell is only living this life without self-esteem. They can say whatever they want, but I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. We have staked staked our souls on this book. There is a hell. And it's burning. And it's tormenting there. And men that are there are begging for one drop of water on their parched tongues. It is so hot and so related to fire that it's called the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. Is it appropriate, is it right for God to judge sinners with such a terrible eternity? Yes, it is. Look what we did against Him in the Garden of Eden. The devil and his angels are going to be there. And wicked men are going there. That is how great and terrible the God of the Bible is. Hell is true. Hell is taught in the pages of Scripture. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. I've got a number of verses here. That's why my my hesitation. I just mentioned the rich man being in hell and, and looking for a drop of water. I know that in Mark 9, there are three repetitions about hell where it says, the fire is not quenched, And the worm dieth not. The fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. You will survive to endure the torments of hell and it won't be reduced. Three times, 44, 46, and 48 of Mark 9. Of course, two of those have been lifted in modern translations. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. Here's another description of where false teachers are going. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. There is a place of torment, loneliness, trouble, and persecution and punishment from the God of heaven for the wicked. They had their chance in the Garden of Eden where we had the tree of life to eat from freely. They chose rebellion against God and He will judge them for the display of His wrath and His power. We will not modify the Bible message that there is a hell. When you look around at the way most churches conduct themselves and their lack of love for holiness, it's because hell's been pulled out of the equation. If there wasn't a hell, I wouldn't want to live a holy life either. A holy life is a hard life to live. You know I'm speaking in the flesh when I say that. I'm speaking the way anyone would reason in a church that's taken the doctrine of hell out of existence. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul said. Amen. And that's right after he described that we shall all give an account of ourselves to God in Second Corinthians chapter 5. There is a burning hell in the Bible. And it's the lot of all wicked men that are under the condemnation of their sins if Jesus Christ does not save them by the electing grace of our sovereign and merciful God. We should all be there, but thanks be to His name, we have been saved from that wrath to come, as the Bible describes it. Turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Let's go to another one and finish for the day. Some of these you know so well, and I'm glad you know them well, but there's no harm in the repetition and I want all of us to hold them fast and not ever give them up. Amen. Don't let someone come along and try to spiritualize hell away. They're called no hellers. They're called universalists. God's eventually going to save everyone. Well, if He's going to save everyone of our race, why didn't He save every one of the angelic race? They are greater in power and might than we are. They were created before we were. The Bible values such things. Why didn't He save all of them? Right. There is a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and all wicked men shall join them there. We all deserve to be there. Thankfully, God is not fair. He is not just just. He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, Amen. and full of loving kindness, right. which is all in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every spiritual blessing to get us out of that place is because we're in Christ Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verse 14 says, "...afterward He appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. This is the 40 days that Jesus proved that He was alive from the dead with His apostles. And He said to those 11 in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And He goes on to describe the signs that would follow their ministry. Verse 19 says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. I dealt with signs and wonders a couple of weeks ago that the apostolic gifts to prove the ministry of fishermen went away in that first 40 year period of time. In fact, before Paul concluded the second epistle to Timothy, he had already lost his power to heal. It was only given for a short period of time to confirm the ministry of the apostles that what they were saying about Jesus of Nazareth was indeed true, that they were truly men sent from God to teach the Gentile nations about the man Christ Jesus. You would listen to a fisherman if he had just raised your parents from the dead. That's not what I'm going after here right now. I'm going after the Great Commission. If you were to look at the mission statement of most churches, most Baptist churches, the vast majority. They say that the Great that the great Commission is their reason for existence. The reason we come together is to funnel our money together into saving the world. We understand the Great Commission to have been fulfilled by the men that it was given to. It was given in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and Acts 1 to the 11. And they, it all reads the same way no matter where you go. Any one of those four passages. He appeared to the eleven. He told them to go Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go preach to the Chinese. Go preach to the Romans. Go preach to the Spanish. Go Go preach to the Moroccans. Go ye into all the world and preach it to every creature. There's no more the limitation to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. While Jesus was alive in His three and a half year ministry with them, He had told them, Don't go to anyone but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Great Commission was to send them out to the Gentiles. And they went and did it. It tells us that in verses 19 and 20. Right. They went and did it. Now these are verses that you know well. Look at Colossians chapter 1. But we can never give this up. Colossians chapter 1. I grew up the first 20 years of my life thinking that the most important thing for me was to be a missionary or something to fulfill the Great Commission. I've been to missionary conferences and I've seen missionaries speak and I've heard the verses that they pull out of the Bible. Just a few. Just a few verses trying to put that burden on everyone. If I was anything like that today, I would be calling for any of you to commit your lives to be a missionary, to come forward and dedicate your life to Christ, go to language school for four to ten years, depending on how intelligent you are, so that you can go to some place in the world and preach the Gospel to them. See, that never happened. In the New Testament. They just went. And you know what? When they got to one nation, they could speak its language. When they got to the next nation, they could speak their language. And they went, and they did it. And the Gospel went into all the world. You say, but some nations didn't, don't look like they believed it. They didn't believe it in the Old Testament either. God left them in darkness. But the, the light of Jesus Christ went worldwide. Because here we have Colossians chapter 1, and look what it says in verse 6. It says that verse 5 has these words at the end of it. The word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. It's come unto you as it is in all the world. Jesus said, go ye into all the world. They went into all the world. Right here. Here's the proof that it happened. Colossians one twenty three. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached past tense was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I Paul am made a minister. The gospel was preached to every creature. It went worldwide. It started at Jerusalem then it went to Judea then it went to Samaria then it went to the uttermost parts of the earth. Have you ever read about how much ground Paul covered? When we get to him at the end of his life, he's saying, I want to come and visit you people in Rome, and then I'm going to go on to Spain. He had already preached as far north as Yugoslavia, which was called Illyricum in those days. He had gone west as far as the borders of Turkey. He had gone through what we would call Syria today, the Roman world. He said he was free from the blood of all men in Asia, which was Asia Minor, Greece and Turkey on our globes today, by himself. Do you remember? They could travel better than we can travel. Philip the evangelist baptized the unit, came up out of the water and disappeared. Immediately he was in his Otis and he kept right on preaching. Amen. That's faster than waiting in airports. Yeah. Right. There's no layovers when the Lord takes you in His chariot. And this is how they did it. And they could speak any language and they could raise the dead. That is very effective evangelistically. To raise the... You, They did it. Amen. It's right. wonderful. It was glorious. Amen. It went into all the world. They fulfilled the Great Commission. It was given to the eleven apostles. It included and it requires, if you're going to stick to the Great Commission, it requires supernatural power. You can't take the Great Commission of Jesus Christ that He gave to His apostles and just pull out the part that you're able to do. You better take the whole thing or you are being dishonest with the Word of God. Because the Great Commission was, these signs shall follow them that believe. The Great Commission was, Wait in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Don't you just take the part out that you can do. Why don't you take the whole thing and let me bring the snakes? Church and young people, the Great Commission was fulfilled. Does that mean that we don't care about anybody else hearing the truth? We absolutely do care. And you know the efforts that we're making to be heard and to be seen, but we do not think in any way that we are fulfilling the Great Commission. We are not waiting for the Great Commission to be fulfilled so that Jesus can come back. In Matthew 24:14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, and then shall the end come. But the end in Matthew 24:14 was the end of the temple. The disciples had just said, Lord, look how beautiful and goodly these stones are. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and that temple in 70 A.D. And before 70 A.D., it was already done. That gospel, the kingdom, had been preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end of the Jewish nation came. It was given to the eleven. It included power for spectacular miracles. It was fulfilled completely by them. And lo and behold, when we start reading Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and all of the other epistles, it was never mentioned again. If it was so important, and it's really the mission statement of a church, don't you think that Paul would have slipped it into one of his epistles? but it's not in any of his epistles. It's not in 1st or 2nd Timothy or Titus. All he told Timothy was that a bishop was also to do the work of an evangelist. When they have opportunity to preach the gospel to those that have not heard, they should go and do that. But there's no great commission repeated. That does not mean that we don't have our duties. Our duties in the epistles of the New Testament are to be wonderful husbands and wives, children and parents, employers and employees, citizens, saints, brethren, we have our duties. And we are to live in such a way that people ask a reason of the hope that is within us. And when they ask us, we better have sanctified the Lord God in our hearts. We better have set Him up so that we are living holy before Him and we truly adore the Lord our God and we are able to give a reason of the hope that is within us. A reason is not just, I believe it. A reason is to be able to establish it from the Bible and show them the truth when they ask us, you have hope when they come and say what must i do to be saved like a hopeless jailer once said to paul and silas we are prepared to give an answer right. but nowhere that we have a burden to go out from this place right now and start passing out tracts to everyone you meet and that does not make light of the gospel at all the gospel is for those that are already saved for some of you that have come to the prayer meetings about our trip to malaysia i love romans chapter 1 and with this i close Romans 1.16 has been abused so many times, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. They believe that by taking the message, we are able to save men. That there's power in the gospel to save there is only a declaration or a revelation or a communication of power in the Gospel. And it's only received that way by those that are already born again. Because if we take that verse and connect it to 1 Corinthians one eighteen, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Oh, that's what Romans one sixteen means. That's exactly what Romans one sixteen means. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the wonderful gospel that, I'm, that I preach. I'm looking forward to preaching to you because it's the power of God to believers. Those that are born again and believe the message about Jesus Christ, they get excited when they hear the victorious message of the gospel. Romans one sixteen. Please, you're following me in your minds. You back up one verse. Verse 15 So as much as in me is... I am ready to preach the Gospel to you that are at Rome also. Romans 1.16 is not a missionary text to go preach to the non-elect. Romans 1.16 is Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of this wonderful message that I want to bring to Rome to preach to you Roman saints whose faith is known throughout the whole world. Right. Amen. Verse 15 says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you that are at Rome also. Why does he want to do that? Why does he want to go and preach to believers? Well, those are the only kind of people you want to find. Listen, when you find unreasonable and wicked men, you pray against them, that you can be delivered from them. Paul said, I want to be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. This is all Romans 1. He couldn't wait to get to Rome in order to be able to teach them with his superior knowledge of the New Testament and to increase their faith. And he knew that they would have a wonderful time together preaching the gospel, hearing the gospel, and enjoying it together by the mutual comfort it would provide. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and we're not ashamed of it, and we should never be ashamed of it. And if anyone hints, asks, or looks like they need some hope, or they're helpless, we can open to them the Word of God and show them there's a God in heaven. His Son, Jesus Christ, is coming again to judge the earth. If they scoff at us, it is the savour of death unto death. If they say, tell me more, it could be the savour of life unto life. Lord, have mercy upon us to find those with life and to show them that savour.